Well, we are going to have our scripture reading this morning. Our Old Testament text is found in Isaiah 53. We'll be reading this entire chapter. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew in front of you. The page number is found there in your bulletin. Isaiah 53, beginning at verse 1. Listen here to God's word. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of a parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed." All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to, led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? He gave, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit uh, in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities." Therefore, I will lot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Amen. Our gospel reading for today is found in Luke chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 26 through 38, and then verses 45, uh, 46 through 56, uh, 55. Excuse me. Listen here to God's word. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And the angel said to her, 
Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even now, Your relative, Elizabeth, has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now verse 46. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the, holy, for the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm, He has scattered those who were proud in in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Amen. And then our primary text for this morning is found in Philippians chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Philippians 2, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and if there is any consolation of love, and if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. 
Amen. This time I'd like to ask you to bow your heads and silently meditate upon God's word that we've read this morning. Heavenly Father, we do want to give praise and glory to you and to your Son and to the Holy Spirit, three in one. We rejoice and we want to express our love to you. We want to tell you how grateful we are that we can come and worship together as your people. We want to want to just let you know, Lord, how grateful we are for your sustaining and ongoing grace and mercy in our lives each and every day. And we know that it all comes through Christ. We pray, Lord, that as we look into your word this morning, that the spirit of the living God would allow the words of life to flow freely, deeply, into our hearts and into our souls so that we might be ever drawn closer to you, Lord, that we might ever be uh, your faithful people in not only hearing your word, but doing it as well. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, we're really living at a time where there is so much great division and dissension in the world in which we're living in. There's a great opposition to truth where good is being called evil and evil is being called good. And it's in this context that mankind is, is really attempting to try to enforce on an international level not only this idea of international commerce and ethics and communication, but they're trying to do it without God. And it's a fool's errand. In fact, when we as believers try to interject in this system that is trying to be imposed upon us, the need for knowing God, their response to us often is, well, how can you think that God exists with all the advancements of science and education and mathematics and all of those other disciplines that tell us otherwise? You speak about God like you know him personally. Like he is your closest friend. And if that's so, then tell me, how has God helped you in this morass of hostility and deep division that is so present today? Well, as Paul's addressing these believers in Philippi, they too are facing the same opposition, the same flipping, if you will, of truth and error, the same uh, redesigning of what is evil and what is good, and man's attempt to superimpose if you will, a commerce, an ethics, a communication that denies God. 
And it's in this context of Paul's letter to the Philippians that he's already told us that as we stand for Christ, we are going to suffer for his sake. And Paul, at this particular juncture of his letter, is trying to encourage the believers to realize that they indeed can and should live worthy of the gospel of Christ despite the environment in which they're living. They need to be citizens of heaven, even willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And in these 11 verses, Paul gives us the reasons why we should do so. In fact, in the first few verses there, the first two, Paul gives us four ingredients of why we should live worthy of the gospel of Christ. He tells them that they should be seeking the encouragement in verse 1 of being in Christ. Being in Christ means that God is living in their midst. That the spirit of the living God has indwelt them and is guiding them. And God will provide the counsel. He will give them the comfort. He will supply the power to aid and help them live for the Lord. In fact, the word there for encouragement is parakletos, and it gives the idea of encouragement, of comfort, of help, of consolation. And the reason why that is true of us as believers is this. We have a high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who intercedes for us right before the throne of grace. We have a Christ who has a loving passion for us that he was willing to go to the cross in order to purchase us back out of the bondage of our sin. And we have a Christ who has a purpose for us that has a heavenly goal. Being in Christ, God comes alongside us. And he, he loves us. And he gives us grace. And he gives us mercy. And it's being poured out every single day. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 11 that we should be encouraging one another and building up one another just as we are already doing. The second part that he gives, the second ingredient, if you will, for the church to remain faithful in their walk with Christ and citizens of heaven while they're suffering for the gospel is this. He says, he exhorts them and us to realize that, that we have a consolation of love. That the God of love, in his fidelity to keep his promises, tells us that we are his beloved. 
And as Paul writes there in Romans chapter 8, that there is nothing that is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In fact, John in his first epistle says that we need to see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And such we are if we know Christ. Just this week, I was talking to someone, and they said to me, as they were going through a very difficult time, they said to me this, I don't know how people can go through life today without the Lord. Have you ever thought that? I'm sure you have. Isn't it a great blessing? Shouldn't we be thankful that we don't have to worry about that? that we have the Lord, that we don't have to go through the morass, if you will, of hostility and deep division that characterizes our day without the Lord? (laughs) We have God in our hearts. We have the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. And and because of that, because God so loved us, we can love one another, can't we? And what is necessary in the community of faith is that love of God to support one another, to help one another, to love one another as God, for Christ's sake, has loved us. That's what John writes about in his first epistle there in chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, and then verse 19. The third point that he makes here is that we have, as believers, we need to be informed of this, that we have the fellowship, the koinonia, of the Holy Spirit. That idea is a close, abiding relationship with the Spirit of the living God who contributes to us the graces and the knowledge and the gifts to live and walk in newness of life. That's what Paul talked about there in Galatians chapter 5, where he tells us to walk in the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to bear the fruit of the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, and to follow the Holy Spirit. And the fourth ingredient that he gives to us as believers is this. Paul reminds us, as he's reminding them, of the the affection and the compassion that God has brought into our lives. 
You see, God has redeemed our emotions so that they're not uh, bound in sin and corrupted by sin, but now they're set free to love the way God loves, to care the way God cares, to, to uh, have mercy and, and, and to reach out as God has mercy and reaches out, and to love one another and to treat one another with all dignity. These four ingredients Paul wants this church to understand and we need to understand are the qualities that God has instilled in us. They originate from God. It's part of his saving grace that we have received in Christ Jesus and through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. And Paul wants them as he wants us to take stock in them and to cultivate them so that our lives stay united in Christ. This, beloved, is the brotherhood of believers. And you will never find it out there in that world. It does not exist. That's why the Apostle Paul there in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14 said this. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And I'm running out of time. One of the things I hope that you see in this passage is this. We have a spiritual oneness with Christ that this world can never know about nor ever take away as we walk with him, as we live for him. It is to make up our community of faith and it is to be visibly seen by the world. If you're here today, and if you have, if you will, a brother or sister in the Lord, or maybe even a family member that you're no longer talking to, or you have a strained relationship with, let me tell you, your relationship with God is also strained. Your relationship with God is not experiencing the fullness of what we just talked about. You have a great deficiency. One of the greatest examples in the New Testament about these qualities being enacted and lived out is during the time of Pentecost. Listen to this the way these believers respond to one another. In verses 43 through 47. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Now, we don't have apostles here, 
but we do have the Spirit. He goes on, he says, and all those who had believed were together and all had things in common and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's what the Apostle Paul was trying to explain to the Philippian church. As they allow these four ingredients to truly grow, and to be vibrant and cultivated in their lives, such a response of living for the Lord and loving one another would be evident. Not only within the fellowship, but to the community at large. And that's why Paul says here in verse 3, he exhorts the church do nothing from selfishness and empty conceit. Why? Because it produces strife, factions, and rivalry. And it fractures this wonderful unity of the church. Selfishness, beloved, is caustic in the church. It is caustic to the church's unity. And it must not be allowed. It's a self-centered ambition. It is devoid of these qualities that we were talking about because it has no notion of wanting to serve or love others. It's only after its own profit or power. And we see the evidence of this over and over again in business, in politics, in education, and unfortunately, even in the church. It's narcissism, pure and simple. It's vainglory. It's empty acclaim. It's self-absorbing. And it is cancerous to the body of Christ. It needs to be removed. And that's why Paul says there at the end of three, verse 3, he exhorts them and to be motivated by humility of mind, regarding others as more important to yourself. And the only way that can happen, as he says there in verse 4, and that is to not only look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. In other words, don't be selfish. Don't be self-focused. Be others-focused. 
This is one of the greatest definitions in the scriptures of what true humility means. Not looking out for ourselves, but looking to help others. Not merely seeking our own aims or our own interest, but the interests of others. You see, this is a necessity. This is what built this country of ours. Because it, it lived because it wanted to honor God and it wanted to encourage others. It is a necessity for building community, and it is especially a necessity for the community of faith. And that's why Paul, over and over again, will tell believers in his letters, do not seek for your own good, but that of your neighbor. Don't give offense. Don't seek your own profit, but the profit of the many. And as James says there in James chapter 2, verse 8, if you have, are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. There should be a great spirit of loving kindness and kindness within the body of Christ. And it should, it should be felt, it should be exposed and seen to the community around us. There's no place for rivalry, no place for vanity. And that's why he encourages there in verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. What attitude? Well, just look up and, and, and see those things, those qualities, those ingredients of, of a true Christian life that Paul was encouraging them, and you'll see the attitude that we're to have, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul's calling them as us to not, not only to not become selfish, but to be Christ-centered, Christ-thinking, Christ-acting. We are to think and act the way Jesus Christ thought and acted. You see, Christ is always the supreme example on how we're supposed to live and what the attitudes of our hearts are supposed to be. This principle, beloved, gets right down to the core, doesn't it? It's getting our minds off of ourselves and humbly, as Christ has demonstrated, serving one another. Meeting other people's needs, concerns, interests over our own. This is the way Christ lived. 
This is the way Christ sacrificially died. This is what he did in order to make full atonement for our sins so that we could be set free to become the people of God. These are the good works that have been before ordained that we should walk in. I don't have much time right now, but one of the things I want you to know, in verses 6 through 11, what Paul is saying to them should ring true to us. And that is, Jesus Christ is our example. There's really only two ways that we can live our lives. One is self-centered. The other one is Christ-centered. And Christ-centered life was always to fulfill the will of God. He lived it out as the Son of God who became a man and suffered and died paying the penalty for our sins, making full atonement for the sacrifices of our sins. And this is actually considered just a hymn. Verses 6 through 11. A hymn, if you will, having three distinct parts. Talking about Jesus' exalted preexistence as God, the Son in verses 6 and 7, and then talking about his incarnation of becoming man and his humiliation that led to his sacrificial death on the cross in verses 7 and 8. And then finally, his glorious and wonderful exaltation, defeating sin and death and hell, Satan, and bodily being raised from the dead, never to die again, exalted at his Father's right hand, ever living for us. You see, we have to close this. Jesus Christ is our example because he became like us in order that we might become like him. It was God's way of coming to man that man might be redeemed from the penalty of his sins and then transformed from within into the glorious image of his beloved son. What about us? <clears throat> Is it our focus? Are our energies? Is it our desire, our purpose in life to allow the example of our Lord Jesus to be the template from which we live our lives today? One of the things that Paul puts out in this passage, which is very, very clear, and that is this. He tells us in verses 9 through 11 that Jesus is enthroned 
as Lord and King. His exaltation is something that was to be an encouragement to the believers there as it should be to us. And he reminds us in verses 10 and 11 that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It puts us out there, if you will, to the fact that Jesus is coming again in power and in great glory as the king above all kings, the Lord over all lords, and every single knee will bow. My question to us today is this. Will that public confession and kneeling to Jesus Christ, to the glory of God the Father, be done willingly and lovingly by you? Or have you been one who has rejected Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord? Whether you've done it quietly or publicly, you stand in rebellion against God. And will that time be that you bow the knee and you confess, not in love, but in outright submission, forced to bow the knee to your judge. The judge of all the earth. I pray that that's not the case for you. Three things I want to leave with you. First is this. We need to stand united in faith, relying on these provisions that Paul outlines here, these ingredients, and share in them as God's people. Second, We need to stand united in faith by the Lord's Lord's example of putting others and their interests above our own. And third, we need to stand united in faith by taking this attitude of Christ Jesus to serve others the way he served to the saving of our souls. Amen.